We are going to read the last portion, the last several verses of Exodus 17 this morning. This is an episode that's concluding several events in the last couple of chapters that have highlighted the Lord's provision, highlighted the Lord's protection, uh, protection of His people, and really uh, a people who show very little gratitude uh, for this. Uh, They're grumbling against the Lord by grumbling against His appointed leaders and Moses and Aaron. uh, The Lord has led them now into this region of Horeb, Mount Sinai. He continues to test their allegiance, trusting or testing their trust in uh, their new master. And so last week we were appropriately warned against testing the Lord and the hardness of heart uh, that comes when, when we test the Lord. Uh, and, and I think the Lord could have just as easily wiped out His people with one swift stroke. But rather, He strikes the rock. And life-giving water flows to His people. And the people are going to need this water. They're going to need strength for what is uh, to come here. So let's read uh, the end of chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. First battle that God's people face. Uh, in the wilderness. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise you for your word. and We thank you that you have come to us, condescended to us in a way that we can understand through this word. Yet, Lord, we need your help to understand and apply this word to our own hearts and lives. And so we ask that you would help us in this, uh, that you would speak faithfully through your servant, that you would make us attentive uh, as we sit under uh, the authority of your word to us. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. A living easy is not free. Um, or I should say that that was actually backwards. Um, it was in my head, but just didn't come out the way it was supposed to. Living free is not easy. Um, learning to live free is not easy. And we don't have to look much farther than. Uh, our own state and federal prison system to sort of understand this. Uh, Some statistics will tell us that two-thirds of the inmates who have been released uh, on parole or or had their sentences shortened and released from prison will actually return to prison within three years of that time. Um, And some say it's it's not quite that high, but it's quite telling. 
And it could be for lack of jobs or lack of education or the inability to break addictive patterns. But this prison system provides a structure and an actual provision that seems very hard to find when freedom is granted. So many find it hard to actually live and operate with freedom. And so the people of Israel have been freed from the oppression of Egypt, from their slavery. Uh, you know, how they spent their days in Egypt were largely defined for them. They learned how, what they needed to do in the Egyptian system in order to survive. Well, now all that is gone. Now they are free to live and serve uh, the Lord who's rescued them. And we're finding that this is very hard for them. Um, they need to learn how to live in a different way. Uh, and on more than one occasion, they want to go back to the prison system. Right? They want to go back to that enslavement and what is familiar, what appears to be safe with the challenges that they're facing in the wilderness. And we won't dwell on this picture, but I think it resonates with the new life and freedom we have in the gospel. Um, When all the sufferings of the wilderness press in close, it's tempting to want to go back, right? Put the chains of the old man back on. Because, well, hey, I didn't sign up for this. This sanctification, this wilderness curriculum is much harder than I ever thought. So the people have seen the Lord's provision. He's given them food, drink, in the wilderness. They've also witnessed His protection, best witness protection program available. And they have the pillar of God's presence in the cloud and the fire leading the way. And so as they grumble against the Lord, they're they're essentially asking that question, how are we going to provide for ourselves in the wilderness? And we know the answer to this is that they're not going to provide for themselves. God provides for them. He has freed them. He delivers them. And now at the end of chapter 17, that question is changing just slightly. Not how are we going to provide for ourselves, how are we going to protect ourselves? But the answer is the same. They won't. God must protect them. He is going to fight uh, for them. Um, so how do we go from verse 7, you know, is the Lord among us or not, to the Lord is our banner in verse 16? That's a big contrast. Well, it takes a battle to move from one, uh, one to the next. So this passage shows us uh, you know, preparation for the battle, power for the battle, uh, and then the pondering of the battle. And you can just chop off those last couple of words. Preparation, power, and pondering. Um, and so the people of Israel here, they have, they have a new problem. Uh, it seems that their travels in the wilderness and their capabilities as a fighting force, or lack thereof, have spread and reached the ears of the Amalekites and We didn't actually read Amalekites. Uh, We just read Amalek, where the focus is on this nomadic uh, people group who are descendants of that name, descendants of Amalek. And Amalek was actually a grandson of Esau. So, as you might imagine, there was some some ethnic tension going on here between the descendants of, of Esau and the descendants of Jacob and the Israelites. And one of the ways that 
the, the Amalekites would really make their living and survive was by attacking and plundering other people groups. And historically, they, they operated in more of that, that northern portion of Mount Sinai. So for them to, to go to the southern part of, of, of the wilderness of Sinai was a bit unusual. Kind of clues us in that, well, maybe they had heard of the weakness of the Israelites or they were fairly defenseless. And so they make this move to the southern part of the wilderness. And, uh, you know, the Israelites, they don't, they're not a well-structured, oiled machine here when it comes to a fighting force. Uh, they may have had some knives, maybe some short swords that they plundered from the Egyptians upon leaving, but they weren't well-armed um, at this point. Another interesting, I thought this interesting little tidbit, but it makes sense. Uh, as we read in Judges 6 and 7, also in 1 Samuel 15, the Amalekites appear to have made good use of the camel. Uh, now, you say, well, well, big deal. Well, camels, you wouldn't know it by looking at them, are actually quite fast at short distances. Uh, they, they can run as fast as those thoroughbreds around the Kentucky Derby at short distances. And so if they had domesticated these animals, that means they could move in quickly. Camels can carry a lot, load up the plunder, and leave quickly. So this, the Amalekites are a force to be reckoned with here as they... Uh, as they move towards Israel. It's possible that they had attacked the Israelites and then withdrew, giving Joshua some time to, to choose some men. But more likely is the, the Israelites saw them coming or they were encamped nearby and they had at least a day to prepare for this uh, attack. But how prepared is Israel, really, for a battle? Uh, don't have a standing army. So when Moses says to Joshua... First time we read of Joshua in the Old Testament. Choose for us men and go out and fight. Uh, this is something that's not done you know, in a few minutes uh, or just a couple of hours. Joshua, Joshua has to go out and, and find these men. Find men who are willing, who are, who are qualified, capable of, of going into battle. Um, you know, I, I think of our time and place, and, and the comparison here is not between Old Testament Israel and the United States, but it's still not easy to find. Capable, qualified men, and now women willing to take up arms, except in rare situations. You know, the armed forces in the United States is a voluntary force. But the latest numbers show that 70%, actually slightly over 70% now, of, of men ages 17 through 34 would not qualify for military service because of education or appearance or health or those types of things. That's not very encouraging for a voluntary force. It usually means the lowering of standards and so forth to meet the need. And we're not given the standards of Joshua's recruiting office. We'll get some, some of that specified later for Israel. But the need is urgent. They must prepare for battle and they must do so quickly. Now, if the history of Israel's deliverance their journey in the wilderness is our history, the very story of our salvation in Christ. And we have a true type here, a true picture of our own spiritual journey. We've been set free as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're moving toward the promised land, our heavenly heritage. We know we're going to make it. Jesus has, has fought the final battle. He has prevailed Victory is sure for the redeemed of God, but there's still a battle. 
there's still these skirmishes along the way uh, in the wilderness. And for the church, it's not a physical battle. Not swords, shields, planes, tanks, ships. This is a spiritual battle. Not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the spiritual forces of evil even the heavenly realms, the powers that are over this present darkness. Spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare. I think it's something that we know of, something we talk about, but we don't understand it real well. And for good reason. Right? This, uh, this, this spiritual warfare, this is, this is a spiritual realm with an unseen enemy. But the the ruler, the commander of the spiritual forces of evil is none other than the devil, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Um, Satan is powerful, but he's not all-powerful like God is. Uh, Satan is intelligent, but he's not all-intelligent like our God is. He's very active in the world around us, but he is not everywhere in the world like our God is. Think of how Satan, he's he's cunning, he's deceptive, and he deploys his forces very uh, strategically in this battle. Um, He's going to work through institutions and systems and and, uh, social, economic, political systems. He manipulates, gives shape to all that opposes the gospel, that opposes what's true and right and beautiful. But Satan's schemes and the way that he executes those schemes through people under his rule are not outside the sovereign rule of our God. God may allow Satan to bring harm. We, we, we see this, we've experienced this. Job would be exhibit A of this. But not all harm, not all disease or accidents or natural disasters are a direct attack of Satan. But we'll experience the pain and the illness and the accidents as we live in the shadow of a cursed world. And that very language, living in the shadow of a cursed world, that very language reminds us of the underlying spiritual battle that started in the garden. So how prepared are we for the battle? How are we preparing for the battle? Satan and his forces, they will appeal to the old man, to life back in Egypt. Do this through the trappings of the world. So it's not a special ops mission where we send in a few highly qualified Christians to to strike blows. This is ordinary life for you and for me. We cannot wake up in the morning and say, you know what, not today. Take and leave, I'm taking a break from this battle. That's not an option. We are advancing and fighting faithfully in the strength of our God or we're retreating and suffering the blows of defeat. So when going into battle, uh, you have to have the right uniform for the battle. Paul tells us what that looks like in Ephesians 6. Um, Satan loves to parade our doubts, our guilt, our fears, our despair, And so we must stand in the righteousness of Christ. We're wearing that that breastplate robed in the perfection of Jesus. And our head covered with the helmet of His salvation. We have that belt of truth 
clasped around our waist. And I want to I want to sit on that for a few minutes because I think just how important this is. We like to think of battles in terms of you know, tangible physical encounters. You know, It's this might on might and we're going to just cast out the powers of darkness in the name of Jesus. But the main strategy of Satan is it's lies, it's deceit, twisting truths that hold so many captive. Organizations stand to reason. Greg Kokel reminds us, I think it's a good word, that spiritual warfare is much more about truth encounters than it is about power encounters. Satan uses deception. And so, well, the kicker here is that those who are deceived don't know it. So it makes it deception. So a huge part of the spiritual warfare, if not the main, is to identify the lie and speak truth. Speak the truth of God's word uh, into this. Um, how do we know the truth from a lie? Well, we're armed with the sword of the Spirit, the living word of God, hearing this word, reading the word, studying the word, putting it into practice. I'll give you just a couple examples of the devil's scheming, the lies that are interpreted as normal from a world that cannot see. One would be that there is no absolute truth. Whatever works for you, works for you. Whatever works for me, works for me. Um, you know, and there's really no sense arguing about it because after all, this position supports peace and, and harmony and tolerance. Um, if we could all just coexist, right? You've seen that bumper sticker? Then this world would be a better place. But we need to see the lie. See the scheme. The message is not one of existence. It is a worldview that says the only right is that everyone is right or that no one is right. And this, of course, is a self-defeating argument because to say there's no absolute truth is making a truth claim. And so we graciously and tactfully in word and in deed point to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's another example. It's front and center. We will have to engage this whether we like it or not. It's at the grocery store, the gas station, in the classroom, on every social media platform. And the message is that you can pick your gender, pick the gender you want to be and how you want to express your sexuality. And we're being told that you can decide this, you know, pick which pronoun you want to be called at the youngest of ages. And so this this desexualizing, dehumanizing is will be seen as the norm if it isn't already. It's getting there. It'll be eternally damaging, which is exactly what Satan desires with this devious lie. And so the spiritual battle here is to expose the lie with truth. Truth that God made human beings in His image. He makes them male and female and He made them for each other. And He does this for His glory, for human flourishing. So church, in preparation for the battle, we must arm ourselves with the truth of God's Word. Surround ourselves with those who carry the same weapon. We must put this sword of the Spirit into the hands of our children, our grandchildren. And then show what it looks like uh, to faithfully use this weapon in battle.
So after a time of preparation, Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to a nearby hill overlooking this battlefield where the army of Israel and the raiders of Amalek are fighting. And Hur was actually one of Caleb's sons. We learn later in the Exodus that he would be a part of judging in Israel. And uh, one of the Jewish historians, Josephus, uh, he, he's written, there's, there's not a lot of support for this, so I hold it uh, fairly loosely. Um, but he actually wrote that Hur was Miriam's husband. Again, not strong support for it, but I thought that was kind of interesting, that it, it's possible that we have, Moses, we have a family affair here uh, around Mount Sinai, where you have Moses and you have potentially a brother and brother-in-law on each side uh, supporting him uh, in this battle. But the most important thing on the hill was not the guys there, it was the staff of God's power, sovereignty, judgment. Uh, and when it's held up over the head of Moses, it shows the Lord's superiority, His victory over His enemies. Now you can go ahead and try this. I know some of you kids probably want to go ahead and you know, put your hands over your head and... Just keep them there. There you go, Piper. I see that. Keep, keep your hands over your head and keep them there until the Lord sends us out for lunch here in a few minutes. See if you can do that. Come on, guys. I know you want to try it. I mean, here's a chance of orthodox charisma, putting your hands in the air. Okay? Um, but it's going to get tiring. There you go. Uh, it's going to get tiring. See how long you can do it. It was tiring for Moses. But every time his hands lowered, and, and there's reason to believe you know, he didn't just switch hands and, and rest like this with a staff, that he had, they had to prop up both hands to hold the staff in the air. The Amalekites are a superior force. The Israelites are no match for them. So unless that staff is lifted high, uh, they are defeated. But when it is held high, there is success. Um, and some believe that this posture that Moses is in is a posture of prayer, that he's He's praying and interceding on behalf of the people. And hands raised like this is a posture for prayer, a very appropriate posture as we pray to the Lord. Uh, but we're not given any other indication that Moses is actually praying. We don't have any other words from him. So whether we call it prayer or not, Moses with raised staff is appealing to the power of God, uh, the only one who can grant victory uh, in this battle. God must fight for His people. In this case, He's fighting through them. They actually have to, to follow in obedience. Remember in Exodus 14, the people just had to, to watch silently as the Lord drowns the Egyptians. But now they have to take up arms in obedience. Self-defense for the glory of the Lord. Now you think, if the, if the Lord does not give victory, if He allows His people to be defeated and plundered, what is that communicating about the Lord? Ultimately, it would show his weakness that maybe he is not able to protect his people. And here's where the psalmist frames this correctly in Psalm 106. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. For the glory of his name, the Lord fights. So people could have every confidence of his presence in the battle. All they had to do was look Moses, whose hands were steady, faithful, uh, reliable in the battle. We can have the same confidence uh, as we look to our God, the presence 
of the Holy Spirit, of a presence that is reliable and faithful and steady, unmoving. Okay? And this battle, the, the battle is relentless. The battle is often tiring. Remember Jesus in Matthew 26, a few of his disciples fell asleep right in the middle of the attack. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We will grow weary. Most of you have your hands down already. Couldn't last 30 seconds. We will grow weary. Um, We'll feel at times like giving up in this fight. Let me say, if, if you never feel this way as a professing Christian, if you never feel the weight of spiritual attack and opposition to your prayer and to your study and pursuit of holiness, then you're likely not in the battle. There's going to be times when we're going to be tired and weary. But we don't do this alone. We, we can't do this alone. We may be able to hold out for a time, but we will need others to, you know, to come alongside us on our right, on our left, to pray with us, to pray for us. So the church, the covenant community, is, is absolutely irreplaceable on this, in this spiritual battle. You know, this morning in this service, we've, we've practiced this already as we pray for one another. Um, what might that look like throughout the week? Um, I know sometimes it's harder uh, to gather as believers and we can pray for each other in separate places. But how much value do we place on this? Uh, if we know how important this is for, for our spiritual battle then we may need to, to reevaluate, restructure time schedules to allow for time together. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about it. I'm just smelling another scheme here. Um, you know, well-crafted deception of the evil one. You know, let's, here's success. Here's the good life right here. And, and everything that the world around us would put in this box... You know, it could be the right job, the right relationship, the right car, the right house, the right friends, the right retirement net, whatever. It's right there in that box. Um, and so, if you're going to get to this box, then you've got to have A, B, and C in place. Right now, that might be the right income, or that might be the right education, or the right fitness plan, or, or what have you, to reach this box. But if you're going to have A, B, and C, well, then you need X, Y, and Z to support A, B, and C. You see where this is going? And before you know it, you are, you are so strung out and your family is, is so here, there, and everywhere and your schedule is so crazy and you're going, how did this happen? We don't have time for anything. We don't have time as a family. We don't have time to, uh, to spend time in God's Word. We don't have time to invest in the church. Why? Because we've placed a priority and a value and a love on, on this and in you know, making sure that we have X, Y, and Z which supports A, B, and C that we've, we've chosen it and the deceiver says, yes, yes, keep your eyes on that. Keep your eyes on that prize. Is this what God prizes, what we have in this box? Is this what He values? 
Now, to let go and restructure A, B, and C, and consequently X, Y, and Z may be painful. It may be difficult. But what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, everything that's here, which is gone in a moment, and forfeits his soul, or the feeding of his soul, which lasts for eternity. So in the trenches, we appeal to the Lord in prayer. We appeal to His glory. Our prayers show our actual dependence upon our God for victory. And it's okay. It's okay to appeal to the Lord's character for help. Lord, for Your name's sake, expose the lies. For Your name's sake, deliver us from the attacks of the world and the flesh and the devil. And so we don't presume to understand what that deliverance will look like. But we can have confidence for His name's sake that He will do good, that He will deliver. How do we know that? Because we're pondering the battle. Preparation, power, pondering. Um, my, my kids have been flipping through photo albums again recently. Every now and then we just go on this photo album binge, um, grabbing one after the other, uh, just reminding them where where we've been as a family, what we've done as a family over the years. And we can look at those pictures and, and, and the captions that, that go along with them and say, yeah, you know, that's, that's a part of our story. Um, so here, you know, the Lord is telling Moses, get out your creative memories bag and stickers, stamps, um, and put this book together for the future. Um, what's supposed to go in the book? It's supposed to be a, a record for future leaders. So here we have an indication that Joshua is going to play a major role in Israel's history to come. That the Amalekites are enemies of God, enemies of His people, and that God promises to destroy them. Um, now, now, this is really important. Uh, this is a promise that would be very helpful for the people to remember. Um, you know, just in case they happen to get to the border of the promised land and Joshua and Caleb come back and say, hey, it's time to go in. But the other guys come back and they say, no, there's scary Amalekites there. We're not going in. And then they're back in the wilderness for 38 years because they have not pondered but forgotten the promises of God. And fighting with the Amalekites is something that's going to continue in the life of Israel. It's going to continue in the time of Joshua through the time of the judges, till finally the Amalekites are subdued uh, by David in his own wilderness, we find at the end of 1 Samuel. So for Moses, the creative memories look more like an altar. Uh, altars were for worship, they were for commemorating something important in the life of, of uh, the people. It goes all the way back. Noah built an altar. Uh, we see Abraham building altars, Jacob. So here, commemorating and giving thanks for the Lord's uh, faithfulness, victory in the battle. The Lord is my banner is the name that Moses gives uh, to this place. And I love here that, that term for banner is so often used in a military context as it's a flag or a signal pole uh, that the army was to rally around in order to regroup. So what, what a fitting name for what, has, uh, what the Lord has done for His people. The Lord is present as Moses you know, had the banner, the signal pole. With his hand, just rallied the troops, gave them success. Do we have a banner that we look to as a church? 
What is the signal pole that rallies God's people, gives us courage for the fight? Banners are really important for this. It reminds the people who they belong to. It reminds them who they're fighting for. And for the church, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's usually represented by what you see hanging on the wall here. Jesus is our banner. Christ is the one we belong to, the one that we fight for. He's the one we rally to and the one who unites us for the battle, a battle that we cannot fight on our own, but fight in His strength. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He is our great high priest, good shepherd, and captain for the fight. And so we must ponder, remember the work of our suffering servant and what He continues to do for us who believe. So we're armed, we're prepared for the battle, fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that is ours in prayer all the while, pondering the banner that's raised over us. All people have a banner. Something that they're going to look to for courage, for hope, for security. Something they're going to rally behind when the attack comes. And for us, that banner is Christ. We look to Him. We rally to Him for courage and hope. We gaze upon His hands of victory and take courage for the day or take courage for the moment. So onward, Christian soldiers. As marching on to war with the cross of Jesus, the banner going on before. Let's pray. Lord, we do look to You as our banner that has been raised over us, that has been raised for us. It is You, Lord Jesus, that unite us as Your people. It is You who strengthen us in this battle. Lord, some of us are, are weary, tired from the battle. We feel just pressed in, squashed down, run over by the deception of the evil one. Lord, we pray that You would strengthen us by Your Holy Spirit. That the promises of Your Word would dwell in us richly. And that we would encourage one another in this battle. We thank You that we have opportunity to do that even now as we go in Your blessing and fellowship around the tables together. Build us up. Encourage us as Your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.